And we're live! It's Lots of Pulp here, where we give you our unfiltered commentary on daily events and the world as we know it. I'm Julian. And I'm Chris. And we have a special guest here, Daniel Correa. I'm Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a little bit about yourself, Daniel. Yeah, it's an honor, guys. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm totally flattered to be uh, the first uh, official Lots of Pulp uh, guest. Um... So, yeah, I'll introduce myself. I uh, might not be particularly relevant to the podcast, but I'm Julian's roommate, um, which is a good friend, um, uh, also a senior at Cornell. I, I study uh, design and environment analysis. My focus is on the built environment, a little bit on the less on the generic side. I'm, uh, I'm a Colombian. I grew up in Miami. Um, and, uh, yeah, definitely definitely have, like, uh, shared a lot with these guys um, my last couple of years at Cornell, and uh, I think this is an exciting platform. I think that it's a cool group um, to really hash out ideas and, and, and have a have a creative exchange. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm flattered. Thank you, guys. And funny enough, Daniel actually came up with the name Lots of Pulp. It was yeah. my idea. Uh, I do really <laughs> like orange juice. This is true. <laughs> so at Cornell, there's a, a totally unused space in the student union building and it's a beautiful terrace and what daniel spent his majority of his time here at cornell has been to revitalize this terrace and have it be taken over by the students again for students by students have a common ground so really what what made you want to do that daniel uh yeah so i think it's fair to give a little bit more background um i'd say you know at my core i'm a, I'm a uh, very hypersensitive individual when it comes to space. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just very aware of, of, of human interaction within space, um, how that affects uh, outcome. I think interfaces, it ultimately does really define um, outcome. And uh, I was actually a transfer student. I transferred from the University of Miami, you know, uh, 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 go you. And, and uh, it, this is a vibrant, this is a vibrant, you know, uh, university in, in basically practically the Caribbean I mean and then I come here to Cornell you know and I, and I um, you know am overwhelmed by how awesome this place is it's filled with resources and extremely driven individuals but really no campus is perfect obviously I had lived university life elsewhere and there were gaps you know there was there was a there was things that the University of Miami had that that, that Cornell had obviously I'm not gonna lie there's a lot more that Cornell has that most other universities don't but no no school is perfect um, and really, I saw a really big kind of pain point, as you might say, or like a gap in uh, spaces for true campus social interaction. So as, as we have here, you know, we have a diverse uh, a, a group of three individuals from very different backgrounds and disciplines who come together and can really generate very, very insightful catalytic interaction where you kind of just spontaneously bridge ideas and individuals. And there was a lack of that. There was a lack of a space that functioned in a way I like that. It was really just happenstance. So you might be at an event or you might run into somebody, but it was very rare. It was just kind of like a stroke of luck. Um, so the effort was really to make a space that, that, that engaged that. I, I, I truly believe that um, that, that type of unplanned uh, uh, ideation and, and exchange of, of thoughts can really come to some really groundbreaking ideas. Um, I know it has for me, and, and, and I don't know if you guys can relate to that. Maybe um, it'd be nice to hear your, your perspective on this. I really loved the the straight edge, uh, which is the terrace project, and it thought that there was really a huge amount of silos at Cornell, and yeah. there was a big separation between student bodies. You know, the architects would have their own 
little niche. The frat people would have their own niche, and there wasn't a lot of overlap. And what Straight Edge really did was it threw all that out the window and let people from different backgrounds come together in this, you know, un unnamed space of the student union building, right? It has no brand on it of this is my space as a Yeah, so it's not it's not departmentally designated, right. which is really which is really important. Um I think one of the things that we were going for um was really the fact that this was a space where everybody was, you know, welcome. It doesn't have a big label on it and um and it's also conveniently located in the center of campus. So uh yeah, I don't know. At its core, space is just really powerful. I mean, we don't, with regard to community and with regard to a college campus, um, Cornell has a huge campus footprint. It's a massive campus. On top of that, the weather, the majority of the academic year, isn't conducive of you hopping, you know, from department to department. Um, so, really, creating a space where you could identify this 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 interdisciplinary inclusiveness, where you could have faculty engaging with undergrads. Um, this experience was also heavily drawn from having studied abroad. I remember um, I studied, oh, you studied abroad, dude. <laughs> here we go. Here, here we go. <laughs> Shots fired. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, in many countries, uh, uh, the, the the line of formalities drawn between the student and the professor are a lot less, you know. And and I have I, I studied abroad in the University of Seville in Andalusia in Spain, and I remember uh, one of my first weeks, I had a beer on campus with my communication professors. And the idea was just preposterous. I mean, I was the one that was paranoid, and he was the one that was like, "Why? Are, why are you paranoid? We're we're having a beer. You're you're like nineteen. What what's wrong with this?" <laughs> um, but it was so nice to have that form of type of an informal relationship. My professor was somebody that I had this like pedagogical relationship with, who I was learning from. But also, he was just another guy that lived in the city, and we could exchange, you know. With, with with drinks as I would uh, with any other friend. And, and that's something that I think that's a stretch to bring here. But I think we can slowly inch towards that. I, I, I would love to get a, a, a beer with uh, uh, many of my professors here. And what do you think that would that would do to the academic relationship? Would, would it make you take them less seriously? Or do you think it's really only positive? I think uh, you bring up a good point. Obviously, you're like breaking down the hierarchy, right? If you're just... Uh, I think really you're just furthering that relationship. You're just seeing each other more eye to eye, and um, I think you can you can have a lecture from a professor, and you're just looking at them on a pedestal, and they are these industry leaders and thought leaders about a certain uh, kind of discipline. But at the end of the day, they go home and they have a family, and they're you know they were in college just like you and me. And I think when the conversation deviates from the lecture sermon style to a casual exchange, much like we're doing right now, the insights that are generated are very differently. I think, yes, the perception of that relationship does evolve, right? So maybe you start seeing your professor more as just another community member, not just this, you know, untouchable kind of a, you know, a, a protocol individual that you just go to for, for, for tests and, and knowledge. Um, That's a good uh, point. So, yeah. Well, just to bring it back to how people interact with space and just the importance of the straight edge but also just the importance of people having something that they can interact with rather than things being very rigid right so there's been a lot of studies and there's a lot of company culture that has been uh, created around 
you know, chairs that you can move around and just having this environment where things are very um, malleable and you can manipulate them depending on the needs at that at that present moment. So um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on that, but, you know, and also companies like like WeWork and uh, just what they're doing to transform spaces for for people like that. Or just purposes. Uh, yeah. Uh, again, this is in in this sense, you're really kind of preaching to the choir. This is very much kind of my topic of interest. Um, but to dig into it, to dig into it, where we are right now in terms of the the, the evolution of, of of genres of space, I think you really have to understand our human origins, right? Like a, a lot of our a lot of our a lot of our clashes with space are rooted in the fact that throughout human existence, throughout the majority of human existence, uh, our sp- our species evolved outdoors, right? And it has only been for a mm. micro subsection of our existence. I'm misquoting, but I think it's something like 90, 97% of our existence was outdoors. We evolved outdoors. Our, our, That's more than, that definitely more than that. Yeah, our, our neurochemical <laughs> our neurochemical reactions are rooted in, 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 in outdoor environments. And then for these last you know, micro fraction of a couple hundred years, We've started to really shelter ourselves, and I think uh, we're so we're so entangled in the complexities of society that it's just handed to us. This is just the generation that we're born into that you really don't question. You know, is it good or is it bad for me to live in a room with no natural light or to study in a basement? You know, that's just the spaces that were designated for you prescriptively, um, and. Mm. I think the mid-century era when mass industrial, I mean, you know, mass global industrialization happened and, and the idea of the cubicle evolved, companies like Herman Miller and the mid-century movement started to mass manufacture generic spaces for, for operating, for workspace, livable space, um, education space. Um, we really started to realize that this isn't healthy, that, that, that we were creating our, our, our um coffins we were working and dying in these very unhealthy environments where people would go days on end without seeing you know hours hours throughout the day without seeing uh, natural light or being exposed to any greenery and there's a lot of research that supports this so um i think uh again i think where we are now is we are realizing that we're realizing that a lot of the things that we had been doing aren't healthy a lot of the ways that we had been living aren't healthy and we really need to be more conscientious of uh our kind of biological and um, physiological needs in terms of space. Not just, I think, I think a lot of that has to do with kind of like throwing complacency out the window and not just taking what you have for what it is, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, uh, and there's been a lot of companies that had, that have come on and, and, and responded to that. We work is a really significant one. Um, it works both financially that uh, you can, lease subsets of space within existing operating spaces and share the costs with other companies. Um, but also, uh, I, I think I think financially, it's like 40%, uh, there's 40% savings from from transferring your, uh, a company of a medium size to a WeWork space, because you consolidate that space and you share a lot of the amenities with other companies and you're also sharing the cost. But also, it's a no-brainer because there are, there are valuable metrics on... Uh, employee culture happiness and general satisfaction of the work environment uh, from transitioning to these more collaborative, evolved, creative spaces where you see the work environment as more of a creative space of exchange. It is, in a sense, just because you're working, it doesn't mean that we stop being social. It doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that we stop having our desires to to be and explore and create. Um, That's just, you know, uh, uh, that's one of the things that I think is really starting to deviate from work is that work doesn't have to be this... uh, 
kind of brutal process of satisfying a task work and then and then the flip side of that is that you go off and you spend your money and, and, and you enjoy your life you can enjoy your life within work what do you think are some low-hanging fruits for people listening and uh, Chris and I just on ways that we can improve our space and the ways that you can live a more meaningful life through the space that you have um, a really big one I think uh, really really ties into uh, um, they call this like the biophilia effect so uh, there are certain studies on cortisol release and uh, human concentration when exposed to uh, nature. Um, the UN did a study in, in urban environments, and one of the biggest quotes for happiness in urban environments is being close to a park or greenery. Um, it, it, it offers a substantial upgrade in, in quality of life, uh, just being around greenery, and I think that's one of the things that we really shelter ourselves in when we're in urban dense environments, when we're literally in a cell. You know, if you think about it, you're just in, in a shoebox, most people, often very expensive shoeboxes, but nonetheless okay. a shoebox. Um, so this is why people pay millions of dollars uh, to have a view of Central Park. And, and, and that's why these spaces are so coveted. And there are biological implications to this. Um, there are uh, cognition and um, memory retention studies on the cortisol release when exposed to, to, uh, to greenery and, and to, to nature. Uh, so essentially, you can focus for longer periods of time and retain more information if you have... Uh, an outdoor facing view. So if you're in a library and you're looking out outdoors instead of at a blank bookcase with a fluorescent light at your face, um, your body is more calm and you're not seeking these kind of gasps of like, you know, where am I? We actually don't operate very well in uh, secluded um, uh, indoor environments. Natural light is another really important thing. We don't get enough of that here in Ithaca. Um, and I think uh, that's manifested in high rates of seasonal affective disorder. Um, and uh, people cope with this in different ways, but um, I think natural light's a big one. I'm from South Florida, it's the Sunshine State. I could go on and off about it, but um, I'd say that that one really makes a really big difference. Uh, yeah, I, I know there's a recent study. I just read this the other day that 50% um, of your basically you're you're impacted a lot by your experience in the woods or being in you know the natural environment and and uh, 50% of like people that are uh, that suffer from depression or sadness in these more city like areas um, can be attributed to when they're younger their uh, kind of like their experience there but um, I had a question before and I forgot to ask it and I'm trying to think of what it was but oh yeah um, so so do you think that this you know the industrialization of the world and the way that we've kind of been um, cornered into making like cubicles and just this this very industrial way of working and you know task 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 um, and not so much focusing on the person but the end product. Do you think that that is necessary for us to kind of to have moved from where we are now? You know, it's from like a something to like a service based economy that we have. Right, like, is that something that now we can focus on, and is possible that not necessarily is possible for other, you know, countries or communities in other places around the world? Um, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, I, I think that we obviously owe a lot to this uh, uh, kind of catapulted growth through generic, large systems thinking type of implementation. But again, it really comes back to operating under that model for a bit, scaling, growing substantially, right? Because you can replicate it. You can make cubicles generically, just by and large, multiple cubicles. 
you make a division in different areas of the country, it's a lot easier to scale businesses and operations that way. But it also, on the flip side, it, it, it came at a cost. And I think it came at a cost to uh, quality of life and mental health and, and, and well-being. And now those costs are starting to outweigh how quickly you were able to grow. Um, I think a really good example of that is, is America's relationship with Walmart. Um, so Walmart... Uh, you know, came in and it was that one-stop shop, you know, they had the, 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 the good, you know, um, what's their slogan? Uh, great value, right? Everything's you know, say yeah. great value. One place where you have everything, you, you go to Walmart for one thing, it's this labyrinth experience and you end up buying so much, oftentimes not even what you went in there for, but everything else. Um, you're bombarded by deals and products um, and, and, and it's kind of hard to maneuver. Really, there's also a lot of studies that, that, that show that it took America... A, you know, many years to realize that that relationship with Walmart is actually really unhealthy. And, and the Walmart experience is not a pleasant experience. No matter, yeah, I'm sure, I don't know, I'm sure you can all agree. Uh, I don't think anybody goes into Walmart, you know, and is, and is you know, in and out with a, with a, with a smile throughout the, whole, throughout the whole process. At the it's, bargains. Yeah, even, if, even, even at the bargains. So, it, I, again, I think the consumer has really evolved. The consumer has really said, you know, why do I need to go into this behemoth warehouse to get, you know, refreshments and then, you know, go through this extremely generic uh, 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 process that does not consider the individual. It's the ultimate by and large. It's like we have everything, you know, we don't necessarily care about you. And I think that's really manifested uh, in this in this kind of turn of events as to how we operate now. People are increasingly looking towards um, uh, 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 buying products from small businesses, local farmers markets. Um, uh, I had a lecture series not that long ago. We had the, uh, Spencer Levy was the head of research at CBRE. And one of his biggest points about emerging markets was this idea that local is the new global. Um, uh, but microbreweries and the majority of, 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 of ur- urban hubs are... Uh, Take up a substantial amount of uh, of of local of local and and, and nat- the U.S. economy, and that's that's really simple when you consider: Do I want to drink a Bud Light made at Anheuser Busch, where fourteen percent of all the world's beer is made at this extremely generic uh, beer, or do I want to drink the locally brewed, uh, you know, draft beer? where I can maybe meet the guy that makes it and I'm walking distance from, from the production facility and that only cost me one, one more. This idea of, of the baggage that you get when you consume is I think something that's also hindered the Walmart model. A lot of, a lot of us know that when you buy something at Walmart, it's being produced uh, uh, with, with subsidized funds, oftentimes uh, below the cost of production, exploiting you know, uh, yeah. uh, outsourced work I'd rather spend a buck more and support my local economy. Um, and that's it's a simple anecdotal example, but I think it's, it's had global implications. Do you see this trend moving even further and um, going into more things as a service, right? Having more experiences as opposed to products and having localization be more of a hub, like Google Sidewalk Labs, for example, is trying to create this this ecosystem of you know, small batch, having community interactions, having the public space be used as like an experience, not just to get to point A to point B, but having this experiential 
product as opposed to just what it is. Right. Uh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, experience is really rooted in the individual. It's the, it's the extreme opposite of the generic by and large uh, 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 experience. Uh, when you have a retail experience that in and of itself is, uh, is a product, just being there, just consuming it, you know, that's, that's that baggage that you get from in using the service. Uh, uh, a lot of people have deviated from retail in general, and, and that's mainly due to e-commerce, right? Most of us, it's a lot more convenient to buy that one thing, not even at Walmart or your local, your local uh, town center, but even just online. And I think the, the small instances of retail that have survived are the ones that are just as you're saying, purely experiential. Um, so the ones that offer you uh, basically a moment of leisure as you're buying that cup of coffee. So you can see this, for example, in like Starbucks, which has now uh, gone into this uh, ultra high luxury um, retail space of the Starbucks Reserve um, coffee shops where the coffee is roasted on site. It's all about the show. It's the highest quality coffee that you can get. You can have the coffee brewed in like 20 plus types of ways. There's nitro brews. Um, it's a whole experience. Just being in there is an act of storytelling. You're seeing all of the components of the end product that ends up in your hands. And it's not the drive through. I don't care what's happening in back of the house. Just give me the thing, you know, because uh, the, there's a takeaway from the product outside of the nutritional value. There's a good moment, you know, and I think that's, that's exactly that. It's a lot of these things are, are, it's that deviation from the generic to the individual. It's like that, that was something that I will take away. My experience was different than anybody else's as opposed to the ready-made cup that's the same for everybody else. Um, and I, I mean, these are all really good examples, but I think that they are trickling down into different industries and everybody is getting their sense of the kind of made to order kind of a, a model where, where everything is experiential and you, you don't just go to buy something because you need it, but rather because you prefer the experience with one brand than you do with another. I know we were talking, this was like, you know, over winter break about, um, and you probably know the name of the guy, but he was that, he was designing a train, uh, train system through this countryside, right? And he was trying to get from point A to point B. Uh, but instead of taking the shorter route, he decided to make the train go through this very scenic countryside um, and also have kind of like tables. And didn't you say they were like entertainers, right? Like on this. Oh, train. yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a fascinating yeah. story. It's a and really so, great story. So this is an anecdote by uh, the very famous ad, ad man uh, by the name of uh, Rory S Sutherland. He's a British ad man, works for Ogilvy, Ogilvy Mathers, who's a really big ad agency in the UK, they handle some of the biggest accounts, and he tells this story, um, I don't know if it's anecdotal or it actually ended up happening, um, but it, it was, uh, it's, it's essentially the story of reinventing the, the Eurostar, which is the train that takes you from uh, Paris to London, mm. right? So um, the Eurostar was presented with this uh, optimization project, obviously it was this, you know, uh, groundbreaking uh, uh, train line that goes through the English Channel and, and takes you to these two, one of the two most important cities in the world, has very high traffic. And um, the question was raised how you could improve the train ride, right? how, how could you optimize this, this, this transit process? And um, the anecdote goes that uh, the project was taken to a group of engineers, right? They spent six months you know, running the math, running the numbers, cost feasibility analysis, the whole thing. And they were able to devise an engineering rooted plan where this uh, three hour, three hour train ride from Paris to London was cut um, 
for by 30 minutes, right, uh, at a cost of about, you know, 6 billion euros. Um, they was going to have to shut down the train for a number of years, but, you know, it was an engineering marvel, the fact that they could do this. The trains are already high-speed trains, right? They have to compete with uh, um, the airlines. They're increasingly cheaper and cheaper. Um, so then uh, the ad man's perspective of solving this issue uh, was... It, it's kind of it's kind of comedic, but it, it really is brilliant. And and it was just that uh, you know. You would hire you would ignore the engineering solution, absolutely ignore it. Keep the existing plane, keep keep the existing train. Uh, you'd hire the world's top male and female supermodels to promenade the length of the train with free, uh, you know, uh, champagne for all of the passengers, um, and. Uh, You'd be asking, and then, and then, you know, the the anecdote was that the the passengers would be asking for the planes to for the trains to be slowed down, not <laughs> not uh, not sped up. You know, so it's this perspective of immediately looking at the system for terms of efficiency is why can't you make three hours really great instead of making them shorter? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the perfect anecdote though, for this transition from from this this efficient services based economy to the experiential. Um, one, uh, but yeah, it's a great story. And where are some other avenues, and where are some other industries that could uh, that you see flowing into this more experiential space? I think the I think the startup sector has really, really daringly gone into these spaces to reinvent the things that that we just begin to take for granted. Nobody thought about you know uh, there was nothing inherently wrong with taxis, right? But no, undoubtedly, the Uber model and the ride services model is substantially better. Um, and that is this more personal, less generic uh, uh, model where you're getting in a car with an individual just like yourself. And that could be you, right? Anybody could just, just uh, ride hell um, and be on both sides of that. Um, but that does beg a good question. I think when thinking about that type of thing, just look at the things that just have never changed. And it's usually the things that suck, right? It's usually the things that like you just dread doing, like going to... Uh, Going to, going to the DMV. Everybody hates going. Why can't that be an app? You know, why can't or or uh, sorting your waste? Sorting your waste. That's another one. Voting. How has that changed? How has that changed since uh, you know? So it's really looking looking within and being like, what are the things that have been the same since my grandparents have been doing it? So um, a big one has been real estate. Real estate brokers. The way that we buy things. It's still the same thing. It's an agent. You gotta go. You know, they mm-hmm. they show you around. It's really dependent on the broker that's selling it to you, not so much on the quality of the product. And it begs the question because we have started to reinvent how we purchase everything else, right? So we buy music on our phone. We buy, watch movies on our phone instead of going to the theater. Um, we order things online. You know, our whole our whole mannerisms as consumers have completely evolved. But certain industries haven't evolved. So I think that's where you really can identify a lot of growth potential um, in saying, like, wait a minute. We're so used to buying everything online. We're so used to increasingly buying things that are more and more expensive. People buy TVs now online. You could buy a Tesla online, right? Mm-hmm. I think they recently deviated from their model of having dealerships because of the operating costs. And now it's only online, which is genius. You know what the thing looks like, mm-hmm. you know? You, they can guarantee you, uh, they can guarantee you um, a great warranty. If anything goes wrong, you know, you have their customer support. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't like need it. a... Yeah, you don't, you don't need to take up the space to have multiple dealerships and satellite locations all over the country and potentially all over the world. So um, another really great one is, um, uh, damn, it's slipping me, but I, 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 I had them. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's all, it's lots of pulp here. It's lots of pulp. Sure, um, it's lots of pulp. I, I think I'm seeing like a motif with all of these concepts 
especially since now we're starting to transition back right to this um, kind of have this connection to the, the producer and the consumer relationship. Um, I want to hear your thoughts, both of you guys, on the nostalgia economy, right? And like mm-hmm. going back to our roots, having a town where you have the florist and you have the person that makes the candles and there's the cooper that makes the barrels, right? Like this, these tightly knit towns where resources are kind of just you get them locally, you you have this relationship with each person, you know them by their name. Um, and I think there's a lot of push for that. People want that, mm-hmm. right? And then the same thing can go for, uh, you, you mentioned before the disappearance of the theater, right? People buy stuff on online and that's great and it's a different way of like this whole service, but people still love going to see a Broadway show. You know, there's Shakespeare in the park, in Central Park, um, in New York City. And people still crave these these different connections right so it's is there a danger to this nostalgia um disappearing or or taking over and and you know hindering growth or promoting growth like where are the trade-offs there seems to be loaded question but yeah there's a lot of moving parts to this and i think that there's this craving for nostalgia in in this new generation that we're a part of and millennial generation and but that's not really global. You can see that maybe in, in some urban hubs like San Francisco or New York City, right, or Vancouver. But to say, you know, the average person in Beijing is wanting a personalized cup of coffee that's small batch micro-roasted would be yeah. a little bit extreme. Yeah. Uh, with that being said, having those production and consumption systems linked in the same local economy leads to much greater resilience. And although it could increase costs, those costs are also leading to more revenue for your business. And it's just a higher quality of life all around. And it's not necessarily only moving back. I mean, like most trends, this is a very secular thing, but it's secular moving forward. So it's constantly innovating. So, for example, these trends are also linked by the ability to have smartphones now. So not only is, say, what you're producing going to be in your area, but you can order it on your phone, have it delivered, and have it very quick. So having these things closer, yet more accessible, and and then lead to a greater community resilience, that would be a really beautiful future to be a part of. But I think it's, I'm sorry, Daniel, you didn't get to, I just want to say this before I forget, but there's an interesting duality between our desire for convenience and our desire for nostalgia and the way things used to be, right? Like it seems to be like there's this impossible convergence that we wish can exist, mm-hmm. right? And also oh, cheaper you, too, you want it to be Of course, cheap, which, you know. And nostalgic. Yeah, so like having something delivered, right? Like you have this local, um, let's say bakery, and you you wanted to you want some cookies delivered for your your party that you're hosting, mm-hmm. and you don't want to go out and drive to get it, but you'd like to have it be delivered. But that company or not company, but business may not have the resources because they're just a mom and pop shop to go and deliver your cookies for you, right? So I mean, that's a very simplified uh, example, but I think it represents this this duality between what what the consumer wants. There's like two conflicting um, kind of factors. What do you think about that, Daniel? I think the convergence can, convergence can be a bit more harmonious than contradictory. And although 
all of this has faced kind of like a great filter where we have dropped off certain things and foregone uh, more traditional models of, of, of consumption, like, uh, you know, going to the movies. Um, I think what that has done is we still have a desire to have the genuine, authentic, you know, uh, um, classical experience. Um, it's just we're more selective about that, you know. So we were quick to drop uh, frequenting the movie theaters um, simply because Julian brought a really good point about, you know, smartphones and what are the interfaces that are readily available to us? You know, if you're buying a thousand dollar TV and you're setting up this home theater system, are you necessarily going to go to the movies if a month after the movie's there, you can have it in the comfort of your home, mm. um, you know? So with the expensive popcorn. Yeah, exa exactly. Butter. Exactly. So exactly. That's another instance where in the industry isn't necessarily helping its case, you know, like what if you could have a movie theaters where you could, uh, you know, bring your own food or really break the model. Um, and that's that's those are the thresholds that have really, I think, forced the consumer to drop certain things. Now you bring up instances like Shakespeare in the Park and a Broadway theater. That's something that you could not simulate within your, you know, within your existing interfaces and your existing technology. And I think those are the things that we really start to savor as special moments. And in terms of consumer products, I think it's very similar. You know, um, I think I think we we live in a generation where people uh, have maybe evolved the quick consumption, uh, kind of quick turnover product uh, where you have low quality, but you're buying into maybe a style or, some, or, or something like uh, fast fashion. H&M. Um, yeah, where, where you really realize, you know, you have a couple, you know, you've, over a span of like one or two years, you have a couple pants from H&M and they rip and then you know that, you know, they don't particularly uh, do the thing. I think people rather have, uh, you know, one good pair of pants, you know, from a, a, a more ethical manufacturer using quality products, you know, something that you actually can be more attached to. Because I think the cost of entry of paying 19 bucks for a pair of pants doesn't really connect you very much to them. It's, I think it's kind of interesting that money is where we lay our attachment to something. But it is, in a sense, a form of commitment. Like, you paid. It was a negotiation. You believed that those pants were enough of your money in this case, 20 bucks versus maybe spending a hundred, you know, at some place, mm. I think you'd care more for those pants that you'd keep them longer. And I think we see that in, in terms of a lot of pro products. I think the nostalgia factor can really go in there, right? Like what if you, what if you know of a, of a, of a tailor or, or, or a seamstress who can make pants at, at you know, at a higher prices of what, what you could buy online or, or, but you know, the person, you know, you're willing to pay more for it. And I think that's one instance where like, you're willing to go out of your way. You're willing to wait. You're willing to, to, to go the inconvenient route because you know that there are many more, many more ways of, of getting this cheaper, faster, you know, and you could probably get two for one, but you rather get the one that's three times as much and you're only going to get one and you know the seamstress and you have to go pick it up on the days that work for her. Um, and I think there is a balance because if we live in a world where everything is commodified and everything is made, to, everything is on demand and everything is just like one hour ship, you know, those are the things that don't necessarily matter to us. Uh, mm. If you look at Amazon's, um, their click to refill button, that, that, that mm. the hardware buttons where you just refill the Tide and something that we just use every time. Nobody gets happy when they buy Tide, especially not, you know, maybe if it's your first time buying it, you know, but, but <laughs> nobody, gets, nobody gets happy. Nobody gets happy when you're buying Tide for the 70th time. Mm -hmm. It's a chore. In, it's a chore before doing a chore, you know? Right. It, wow. It, it's not, it's not the, it's not the, you know what I mean? Uh, those aren't the purchases that we're double thinking or that we want to make special, right? 
it's the things like, uh, you know, a pair of glasses, you know, really, this is something that's going to go on my face every day. And it's maybe only going to be there for like, you know, one or two years or something. I want to really take my time. You know, I re really want them to be special. I want, maybe I want to know the guy that makes the lenses or it's my doctor. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think there can be a really good convergence and harmony between, between that desire for having an authentic experience and then having efficient, uh, uh, commodified user interfaces, but, but choosing not to use them, mm -hmm. choosing to go the, the right. road less traveled and making that your own thing. Um, if anything, the generic experience is what has begged for people to have the unique experience. Mm. Um, and that's, um, to build off that point, to having, off that. <laughs> having that more of an experiential thing where you have that attachment to the product is, is really something that is a human construct. Not not really human contract because it's so it's so ingrained wanting to wanting to have that that connection, and I think it could also really improve say overall sustainability as well because yeah. you're using less materials you're repairing your jeans as opposed to mm -hmm. buying just a new pair that was made from a Bangladeshi underpaid garment worker maybe not even denim yeah maybe and, just something that looks like denim yeah. or robots <laughs> <laughs> and. And you're you're able to make your communities more resilient. You're closing resource loops. So, really, I'm trying to really unpack what are different ways that we can we can build these models either right here or when we graduate. And what what are what are ways that this can be taken to the next level, adopted to you know majority of the United States or Europe or developing countries like China or India. And, and how can we move more of our industries and production and consumption systems to this experiential, personal attachment versus the generic commodities? I think the tricky part there is really the scalability of the authentic experience. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you can have an experience that people genuinely prefer, uh, are willing to pay more for. But as that business grows, can you scale operations and remain authentic and 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 uh, persist in terms of quality um, because I think the moment that you lose that you're just another one you're just another by and large mm -hmm. um, I think those are the things about about consumerism that are really tricky uh, from the business side because maybe you have this fast-tracked you know initial growth when you really are this mom-and-pop model and people see you know everything done by hand but then naturally you know you have to expand if your things are going well and and it's how how do you start to you know how do you start to negotiate between, you know, buying from the local, you know, mm. buying your ingredients from the local farmer's market or, you know, uh, a local farmer versus the local farmer no longer can produce enough for you. So then now you have to go and outsource uh, and then it's increasingly more profitable to go the, you know, the cheaped out route. I think those are the tricky things about scalability. And then also there's a there's this cool factor, too. I think you see it a lot in fashion. Uh it's like if everybody's riding a trend, right? Everybody has the authentic product and, 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 and product. It doesn't, is it, is it authentic anymore? You know, is it cool yeah. anymore? Is that cool factor is now an authentic factor. It's like, oh, this is from, you don't know the label, right? Actually, you've never heard about this label, but then everybody has a label and then it's no longer authentic. Um, so it's just riding waves. It's a really tricky um, kind of space to maneuver because you have to always have to be kind of at the helm of, of innovation and, uh, but always innovating, constantly innovating. I don't think you can. I don't think you can stay stagnant with one thing. I mean, 
you know, Tesla keeps rolling out cars and they do these auxiliary products just to be cool. It's like that flamethrower. I don't, I don't think that did anything for anyone, but people bought them like, you know, crazy. He has that carbon fiber uh, surfboard. He's a car company. He has no, you know. Yeah, I never, I didn't see that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think staying, staying with it and, and, and constantly innovating is a really big part. People always will be interested in, in, in nuance. People will always be interested in things that, things that are limited, you know, things that are, uh, I think that attaches you more to thing. And inevitably this all, I mean, this whole conversation is rooted on, on essentially materialism. Like we're so deep into this, this lifestyle where we quantify our happiness and our quality of life based off of physical things, you know, whether that be a zip code where you live in or, or, you know, the school that you go to or the shoes that you wear, they have this kind of brutal intrinsic value in life. And, um, maybe, maybe this is a step in the right direction. Maybe this is a step in like conscious consumerism where you actually, you know, not, not judge somebody by the style of the price of their shoes, but rather the ethical practice of the company that makes those shoes. Um, and actually you look down upon the people who are wearing things, um, that, you know, are, are really dropping the ball in terms of, uh, uh, ethical practice, um, or social responsibility. Um, you know, how, how can you, how can you consume to, for, for a greater good, um, sort of idea of sort of like votership through consumerism. Yeah. Um, like your, your dollar is a vote, right? Absolutely. Especially when it comes to, you know, Patagonia and their good practices. And, but I think there's, it's a double-edged sword and so we are, we should probably be wrapping up since it's already 41 minutes, but, um, I think it's, there seems to be like how much of our conscious purchasing and, and this is a very open-ended question and I don't know if we're going to be able to really answer it. Um, but what is this, this, is there like an illusion of what uh, the, the companies kind of create, like even on the local level that this is local and locally sourced and all that. But you know, you have a brewery that makes, you know, they're a microbrewery, they, they brew locally and that's really cool. And people kind of dig that. Right. Um, but the hops come from California or like, somewhere on the other side of the United States, but there's like this, how many exchange of, how many, um, like hands does it have to cross before it can be considered local or like what, to what extent are consumers supposed to look back? Right. Like there's just this overload of information that may be really hard to sift through, especially when there's multiple points of entry for, to make one product. Right. I think, I think one point to that, if you start thinking about it that way and you really look at votership, consumerism as as an act of of, of of voting it's something that we do every day you know you vote for president every once every four years and then uh, uh house of representatives another another um you know span cycle but we purchase something every day and just as often there isn't transparency in terms of our political candidates um there there it can also not be transparency in terms of our producers and and who we're buying things from um, so I think increasingly it really, really turns to having systems where you can really third party certify the operations of things. I think uh, 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 things like cradle, cradle certification, um, uh, lead certification, um, sweep, <laughs> sweep on the come up. Uh, you heard it here first. Uh, um, I heard about another one the other day. I think it's, it's well. Um, well, yeah, they've been around. Well, very, well certification, you know, these third party entities that operate completely independently from these businesses really just to make sure that you know that what you're buying is ethical um i i, I heard a, a really big one now is um ethically sourced gold 
Um, mm. It trades at a premium, but you know that it isn't tainted with blood. And that thing about with most most consumer gold in the world is extremely dirty, and 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 it has has caused the deaths of many innocent individuals that are exploited to run this industry. Um, but increasingly, consumers that you have to think about that is that if you're spending so much for a wedding band or a meaningful gift. Um, can you live your, with yourself now if you're spending that much money and you know that it's coming from a bad place, but, but it's actually oftentimes a gift of love. Like it's mm. like a, you're giving a gift, you're going extremely out of your way to buy this expensive metal, you know, uh, cast in a certain design or a mold. Can you now ignore knowing? I think, I think the exposure plays such a big part. Yeah. That's, um, That's a really good point. With that, I think uh, we should wrap up. Thank you so much for... For coming on, Daniel, it's been it's been interesting and been pulpy. That brings the question to uh, to you, the listeners. What are ways that we can make production and consumption systems more of an experience, more ethical, and what are ways to improve? And tune in next week. Cool. Pulpers out. That was good. That was good.